You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 21, is where we'll be. You know, Jesus is giving his famous Sermon on the Mount. His disciples have gathered around him and they're learning what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to follow Christ? And that's what we're learning too. He's already told us our identity, who we are. We're we're supposed to be meek and humble and peacemakers and pure in heart. Those are the, the light of the world, salt of the earth, those kinds of things. And now Jesus is getting into the things that we do. If that's true, if, that's, if we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world with him, and if we're supposed to be meek and humble, what does it look like now in our lives to have Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior? That's a phrase you hear a lot in the Bible about Jesus. You've got to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, receive him as your personal Lord and Savior, and that's so, so true. And there's an element to that that we can often overlook and forget, is that if you want Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, then you cannot overlook the fact that he is also going to be your personal life Lord and Savior. Down into the smallest, most intimate, most personal moments of our lives, Jesus says, I'm the Lord over that too. And I want to save you from that too. So let's stand together, if you're able, as we read the words of Christ, beginning in verse 21. Jesus tells us, You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and he will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Jesus, help us now. 
as disciples gathered with you, ready to hear from your word what it means for our lives. Just like when you spoke these words there on, on the mount, on this giant hill, as people listened, we, there are disciples here gathered on a flat piece of earth, ready to hear from you. So meet us now, King Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We sold a house recently, and one of the enjoyable elements of selling a house is the house inspection. That's easily the most exciting part of selling your house. This guy comes into your house, and he begins to go through with a clipboard and pen and paper and goes all throughout your house taking notes, taking pictures, and begins to point out things that you were totally fine with. Things that were okay with you. Oh, the rotting board on the garage? That's just cosmetic. That doesn't change the quality of living here. Yeah, the mold on the siding? Sure. The black mold? Eh. I mean, there's all kinds of things in a house inspection that you were totally cool with that didn't but are actually a big problem. Jesus, what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is taking us through our, the home of our lives and saying, you see that right there? That's not good. But I'm totally fine with that. And Jesus, I know you're totally fine with that. And that's a problem too. And he begins in these very personal, very um, non-public always displays where we're off kilter what it means to follow him. And he goes into three ways, about with our anger and with our lust and in, even in how we view marriage in our marriages themselves. Six times throughout this section, these next two weeks, Jesus is going to say, but I tell you, but I tell you. So I want you to see them. And if you have a pen or you write in your Bible, or you highlight in your Bible app, I would do that. Look at verse 22. He says to them, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, he's going to say something else about this. And 27, you've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, verse 32 and 31, where divorces his wife, he must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you. Then 33 and 34, but I tell you, 38, I tell you, 39, I tell you, 44, but I tell you. So Jesus is going after how we think and what we assume is true. He's saying, hold on. We need to dial back in. In this first section, he's going to go over our kind of private, personal ethics way of living. And next week, the next three, we have our kind of public ethics and public life out there. But today, Jesus goes after some of our inward thoughts. Things that maybe no one else knows but him. And some of it's just behaviors and emotions that we have that go undetected by most people. But Jesus says, friends, I pay attention to you. Not like a spy, but like a loving savior. Jesus is leaning into this passage and saying, brothers and sisters, I pay attention to you. And I know you better than you know you. I care about you. I want better for you. So listen to me for a second. Because Jesus says, I care about your anger. Jesus cares about our anger. Look at verse 21. He says, you've heard, and he's quoting the Old Testament many times throughout here and, and different teachings that are around during the day. But he says in 21, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. 
And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you. Now, sometimes you may have heard preachers or Bible study leaders say, what Jesus is doing here is he's giving the antithesis, the opposite of what was being taught. Well, that's not true. Because if that were true, it would sound like this. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. But I tell you, murder. No. It's not the antithesis. It's not the opposite. Jesus is giving a deeper understanding of the law and the prophets and what it means to really follow him. And how amazing is it that he says, I know you've heard Moses, but I say to you. Jesus is saying, you need, everyone should be listening and giving me the respect that is due to me. Because imagine if I was up here saying, you know the Bible says, but I say, this place should empty. But since it's Jesus, he's giving us the real insights that we don't apprehend at first. And that's what I love about Jesus here. This is something we all desperately need. Because when Jesus says, I say to you, you know what he's doing here also at the same time? He is challenging and changing the way we study the Bible. He is addressing our assumptions that we bring to the Bible. Oh, I already know what this passage is about. And Jesus says, oh, really? He challenges the way we interpret, the way we understand, the way we apply the scriptures. And I desperately need this from Jesus because sometimes I read stuff and I go, yeah, I already know what this is about. And Jesus goes, why don't we try again? Why don't we read that again, Jeff? Oh, yeah, I'm already living this. It's already done. And then I read it again. Jesus says, see? And that's what he's doing here with us. And then listen, if you never find Jesus saying stuff like this to you in, in your soul and by faith as you read the scriptures, if your assumptions are never changed, your interpretations, your understanding of the scriptures are never changed, if Jesus never challenges you, I don't think you're walking with Jesus very closely. If Jesus always agrees with you, I think you have a different Jesus. I don't think you're walking closely with him enough. So ask yourself, when was the last time I used to think a certain way, but then Jesus changed it. As a disciple, yeah, oh yeah, back in college or back when I was in high school. No, I'm talking about like this year. As you've been a disciple of Christ, when is the last time Jesus changed the way you thought about something? Are you used to live a certain way? And Jesus says, you know, I got a verse for that. I have a word for that. Because if the risen Christ isn't revealing stuff to us, How are we walking with him? And what Jesus does here, I imagine him looking at the crowd and now he's looking at us together and him smiling kindly and saying to us, friends, you know all those murder shows you watch and podcasts you listen to, Serial, Staircase, Cold Justice, Evil Genius, Murder, She Wrote, maybe some older crowd. Matlock, you know all those shows you watch? You feel pretty good, but you haven't murdered anyone, don't you? Jesus leans in and says, how's your anger, though? Because that will send you to the judge of judges, too. How about those names you call a brother or sister on the way home from your small group? It's just you and your spouse. Or what do you mutter under your breath when you get that text from that person? Jesus says, all of that can send you to hell too. And Jesus says, I want better for you. 
What Jesus is saying here in verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister, it means literally, it's an Aramaic phrase, fool, moron, idiot, will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool, you moron, will be subject to an awkward conversation. No, hell fire. Gehenna is what he says is a Greek word for the city dump outside of Jerusalem where there was kind of like in the Simpsons in Springfield, an ongoing tire fire over there. This is the ongoing tire fire in Jerusalem, this place. And Jesus used it as a metaphor for what hell is like. Jesus is saying, look, just because you haven't murdered anybody doesn't mean you are mature. Lots of people don't murder people. That doesn't make you a a growing disciple of Christ. And notice also Jesus doesn't say that we can never become angry. Of course there are times we get angry in this world. I'm really angry this morning about a report from the Chronicle that I read last night about 700 or more victims in Southern Baptist churches in the last years of sexual abuse that's gone unreported and not dealt with. So we should be angry about those things like abuse and injustice and racism. There are things that make us angry. And Jesus knows that. And that anger should be used righteously. But then there are other times when we get angry and we don't use it righteously. And then we don't even deal with it. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Because look at what he says. Whoever, but I tell you, 22, everyone who is Angry, not who becomes angry or who got angry, but presently is angry. And the way this is constructed, it's like there is a steady state of anger. It's just running. It's nourished and fed, and it's a steady state of anger. One thing about anger is anger has to be fed for it to live. Anger is like a nasty, stray neighborhood cat. If you ever, we had one in our last, last house. Nasty, ugly fleas. It's gross. But what happens? If you pay attention to it, it comes back. You, you, you talk to it, you feed it, it comes back. And I remember this cat kept coming around. I'm like, why is this cat keep coming around? And Ivy goes, oh, that's Gutchess. What? That's our cat. No, we don't have a cat. And what kind of name is Gutchess? Also, that's not. And they're slipping food on the porch for this cat. I'm like, no. You feed a stray and it hangs around. It thinks this is where I belong. And when you feed your anger, see, Jesus is addressing this alley cat of anger that, we're, that you're trying to house train. And Jesus says, we got to get rid of it. You get so mad. I mean, think about how childish this is. Calling people names. How old are we? Raka, fool, moron. I mean, these are the words. And Jesus says, you know why you're doing that? Because your anger is now this connected just explosion of your dissatisfaction with your life. You think you deserve better. You should be treated better. And now you direct this at a brother or sister in Christ because they didn't treat you like you are a deity. Now you're exploding in wrath. And the problem with this is what we just read at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Aren't, you, aren't we supposed to be the people that are peacemakers? Aren't we supposed to be the people that are pure in heart? Aren't we supposed to be the people who are merciful and humble? I mean, what did the cross and resurrection of Jesus do for us? 
And we're supposed to be the humble peacemakers. And now we turn around and we lash out and attack someone made in the image of God. Jesus says, I don't think you get it. Our anger is a problem because it's not loving our neighbor. It's attacking. It's dishonoring our neighbor. And the world does this all the time. All the time. Our entire media cycle right now and politics runs on this strategy. Name calling, belittling, and dishonoring. Whether it's a new popular congresswoman or whether that's the current president or even if, I mean, people misspeak and say things all the time. One of my favorites has got to be strategery. But then we make fun of and we don't let it go and we memify this person and then we name call for the rest of days. So we can bring them down to to discredit. That's why we do it. Listen, the world has its way. Let the world do their thing. They're going to do it. In the kingdom of Christ, we have our way too of outdoing one another and showing honor. So right now, do you have a simmering anger towards someone? Especially another Christian. Jesus says it's time. Even while you're sitting here right now this morning, it's time to deal with it. Look at what he says, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you are headed to worship. And there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. Drop it. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. And then come and offer your gift. You know what Jesus is saying? As he amps up this timetable for dealing with reconciliation, he says, imagine you're in line. You're going to drop off your tithe there at the back or when the basket comes around. And as it's the plate is coming, as the communion is coming, as the songs are starting, as the sermon is starting, and you remember, oh, man, I do have a little rift with Tommy or with Susie. And it's, it's me. It's all me. I mean, I, I cause it. They got a problem with me. What does Jesus say to do? Let them bring it up. No. That's how we deal with things. If that's their problem, they got a problem with me, then they got to come and talk to me. I'm fine. And Jesus says, no, you're not fine because your anger problem will soon turn into a hell problem. Jesus says, lose your place in line. Make it right. And Jesus is revealing something so important to us that we often don't think about in our Christianized suburban culture. You cannot properly worship God if you have a rift with another Christian. You cannot properly worship God if you have a conflict, a division, an issue with another disciple. We may think we can, but we're really not reading the Bible in the throne room then. We're not singing into the throne room. We're really just in an echo chamber for ourselves. What Jesus is teaching us is that reconciliation is just as vital as worship. That reconciliation is just as vital as personal devotions and the worship service. Like we think those are big Christian movements, reading your Bible and praying and fasting. Those are the big things Christians do. And Jesus says, you know what else is a big thing Christians do? Getting along. Getting along is a big thing Christians do. Because getting along is also a gospel tract itself. Teaching the world, this is how Christians live. This is the kind of people Jesus creates. So listen, right now, hear me. If you need to slip out, like I think we should take this 
Seriously. Jesus says, if you're here and you have an issue, drop your gift. So if you're here and you got an issue with somebody, you need to slip out and go deal with it. Make a phone call. Make a text message. I thought about saying, we'll all close our eyes and we'll wait. But we should leave our eyes open and, and celebrate with you. That you are pursuing obedience to honor Christ and to honor one another. And just the other night, we're leaving soccer practice with my daughter. And Van in front of me, soccer mom, I'm a soccer dad or whatever, soccer mom in front. And she's not going. It's her turn to go. I'm thinking, I want to go home. Will you go? And I see she picks up her phone. She's just looking at her phone. I can see it, you know, glimmering. I'm like, oh, gosh. I'm like, will you go, you dingus? Just go. And I just start, like, I'm yelling at her. And my daughter goes, um, you're not supposed to call people names. Jesus doesn't like that. This was Tuesday, this week. And I had just read the passage that morning. And I said, oddly enough, I'm preaching that this Sunday. And Ivy goes, ha, she's just dying laughing in the back seat. And you know what I could feel in my heart? Well, you know, Jesus is actually talking about how Christians talk to one another. I don't know if this lady's a Christian, so um, that's not really how this works right now. And I was just kidding. I, I wasn't being serious. But Jesus does apply this to how we engage with non-Christians too, doesn't he? If your adversary is treating you harshly, Jesus says, hey, get rid of your pride, make it right. It's the same thing. Get rid of your pride even when you're here at church and make it right. Jesus cares about our personal lives. Even just words in a truck when no one else is around but my kids. Even just when you're in your car or you're in your office and there's no other Christians around. Jesus cares about how his new creations act. And in one way that's super personal, Jesus cares about your eyes. Look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or you can say who looks at a man lustfully, has committed adultery with him or her in his or her heart. Like before, Jesus is saying, just because you haven't committed adultery, that doesn't mean you're running on all cylinders. Because if you've ever looked with lust, Jesus says you failed too. And this one's stabbing, isn't it? He's pointing out a giant moldy spot in the master bedroom. Because most of us, men and women, north of puberty, we have all, we're all guilty here. And the word look here is, is challenging in English. Because in English, it, it can mean many things. It can mean a glance. It can mean just a quick look and then a, a way. It can mean just a peek. It could mean a long stare. It could mean a linger. Look can mean many different things. And the one Jesus is here talking about is that linger, that, that stare that has a purpose to it. That's why he talks about your eye and your hand because the hand, I don't think he's talking about something overtly physical. I think he's talking about because that you want to take what's not yours. This is what Jesus is talking about. And he's not, getting, I want you, he's not getting onto us for noticing there are pretty or handsome people in the world. That happens all, all the time. You'd see someone, oh man, that's, that's a, a pretty person. That's an attractive person. That's a handsome person. You notice that. Those people are out there. They're everywhere. But something different happens when you linger. 
when you begin to entertain and fantasize and wonder and study with a, and stuck looking with a purpose at lust. And Luther, Martin Luther captured this so well when he said, look, you can't, I can't stop a bird from flying over my head. I can't stop temptation coming at me. I can't stop a bird flying over my head, but I can stop it from nesting in my hair. You can't stop seeing someone that was pretty or handsome, but you can stop your lust. You shoo it away. That second glance, that, that long look at the gym that you think no one else is noticing, that quick peek again and again, Jesus says, I know what you're doing. Do you? And this isn't the same thing as committing adultery. Jesus is exaggerating on purpose. There is no one fleshing. There is no breaking of the marriage covenant with a second glance of the person at the gym. What, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that second glance isn't harmless. Just like that, Adultery isn't harmless. That second glance isn't harmless. In the same way as though you said something in anger, that doesn't mean you should be put on death row. But also that's not harmless. And as our personal life, Lord and Savior, Jesus says, I care about what you look at. I care about what satisfies you. And so what does Jesus say to do? Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Why? For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body, then your whole body be thrown into hell. Same with the hand. And Jesus is so fond of extreme language because he wants you to think. He shows you he means more than one thing. Most people, sometimes we'd read this and think, okay, you just got to cut off your hand, right? That's what you got to do. Okay, Jesus, cut off my hand. Now what? I gouged out one eye. Now what? That's not what Jesus is after because you can lust with an eye patch, can't you? You can lust blind, can't you? I have a blind uncle. And I remember one time him talking about listening to adult activities on the television. You can lust without your eyes. So what is Jesus saying? Or where does this sin happen? What does he say? In the heart, verse 28. Instead of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, you're lusting after your neighbor in your heart. Now, Jesus says, you can't do that. So here's what he says to do. Take measures with what you see and what you want to take like it's your own and cut it off. Gouge it out. And sometimes I know what's happened in Bible Belt culture sometimes is a pastor will say things like, so listen, ladies, you've got to be careful how you dress. And you don't want to cause people to stumble. And that's true. And another, that's another teaching. That's another sermon. That's not this moment. What Jesus, he is not addressing that. Jesus is saying, hey, you own your eyes. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. You own your eyeballs, and you should know where to put them if you are my disciple. So brothers, sisters, men, women, Jesus is inviting us to all agree and to live as though eye candy is off limits. I know sometimes that can be like more of like a girl thing. Like they can kind of joke about that. Ooh, man, see that movie? That guy with some eye candy in that movie. Imagine if guys talked like that. Man, did you see that movie? Woo! Like, we'd be like, what is going on? There is a real double standard that I think women have to be very careful of. No eye candy. 
God has given, if you are married, God has given you a spouse to enjoy to the max. God made romance, and it's amazing. I mean, think about, out of our 66 books of the Bible, there is one dedicated to, to erotic romance and marriage. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God gave it to us to enjoy. And Jesus saying, just look at the right person. That when you're in that restaurant and then that other person comes by, that you don't have to look because I'm so satisfied with God. I'm not being robbed if I look, if I don't look. I'm so satisfied with my spouse. I, I don't have to look. I don't have to glance again. Whoa, I'm not looking back at that. And this is so countercultural. As our culture runs and wants to use lust to sell everything, burgers, there are fast food places selling, wanting to use bikini-clad women to sell you a burger. And every time I see that, I'm like, look, I'm already hungry. I don't need that. I'd rather you make a good burger. But you don't. And social media and movies, and we're going to get real, scenes on TV. I mean, you can't ignore the Harvey Weinstein reporting. And him forcing women to do scenes that they don't want to do or he'll take their careers away. They don't want to do it, but they do it because they don't lose their money, lose their career, and then we go and watch it. And I know this past week, a lot of people put the red X on their hand about ending sex slavery. One of the best ways we could begin to end sex slavery is stop watching pornography. Jesus cares about all of these things. Scenes and TV and beyond. So listen, beloved. If Jesus is speaking so exaggeratedly, rip out an eye, cut off your hand, do you think he might at minimum mean stop watching that show? If it causes you to lust, stop watching it. There are shows that I've wanted to watch, my wife and I, and certain scenes come up and I just go, you know what, I, I can't. I don't know how other people watch it, I guess they're godlier than me and more powerful. I can't watch that. Get rid of your smartphone. If Jesus means cut, if Jesus says cut off your hand, do you, do you think at minimum he means maybe get rid of your smartphone? Maybe cancel your HBO. Or maybe just go to sleep at the same time your spouse does. And sadly, I think some of us would rather suffer amputation than delete an app from our phone. I mean, do you want to run the risk of sinning? Is being entertained more important than exalting Jesus and enjoying Jesus himself? And here's why this is so important to fight this sin. Look at verse 30, how he ends this section. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Why? For it's better to, you, it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So what's at stake? Not an awkward conversation with your spouse. Not an awkward conversation with your parents. But Jesus says, hell. Not that you could lose your salvation, but that you may show you never had it. Because disciples turn from lust. They fight. And sometimes we use the word, oh, I'm fighting the sin, when really we're just giving into it over and over. and There's no fight. But disciples fight. Why? Because blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, amputation happens when something could kill you. 
like in war or in a disease, you cut it off. And Jesus is saying, there may be things in your life that you really do need to cut off so you can walk with me. If there are shows and social media that tempt you, Jesus says, get rid of it. Imagine stepping in a fire bed, fire ant mound, a big one. You're in your yard, shoes, it's spring, you're planting some fresh flowers, and you step in that fire ant bed. What happens? What do you do? What, let's ask it this way. What do you not do? Well, wouldn't you look at that? This is going to be a struggle. I want to see how this works out. I want to see how the, my character develops throughout this scenario. I mean, I've already come this far. I really want to see how this season ends. How do you think this is going to go? I want to see how other people respond to my situation. No! You flip out, you freak out, and you start knocking all those ants off and taking your socks and shoes off and you're on the hose. You begin to handle it in a quick manner, taking off what you need to and applying water, cleansing where you need to. And Jesus says the same thing needs to be happening in our lives. Remove what you must. And I know I get questions like, what do you think about Game of Thrones? What do you think about this show? What do you think about Bachelor? What do you think about that? I'm not going to go into and say, okay, here's the calculations. I, I, I can't do that. But the Holy Spirit can lead you to do that. I had someone come up and ask me about a show after the first service. and said, you, that's between you and Jesus. I can tell you what I do, but you got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But I will say this. I think it's, if, I think it's better to go to heaven than having never watched the most popular show that all your friends are watching or Snapchatted or whatever than knowing the plot lines and having the cool filters than going to hell. Because these are the stakes Jesus gives. As our personal life, Lord and Savior, Jesus cares because we may destroy our lives and we, we may even destroy our marriages because Jesus cares about your marriage. Look at verse 31. Right after talking about adultery, he moves into to marriage. You've heard it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, third one, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Adultery and divorce are so painful. And I know many of us have been affected by it either directly or indirectly as as either adults or as children. And Jesus really does care about this. That's, that's why he's addressing it. See, sometimes what we think happens in the privacy in our home is no one else's business. But Jesus is someone else, and he says, it's my business. As your personal life, Lord and Savior, I care about this. And what we also have to know about this, these two verses, Jesus isn't giving a full teaching on divorce and remarriage. This is not everything Jesus and the scriptures have to say about divorce and remarriage. He is addressing one situation. He is addressing one situation in this Jewish culture because in his time, you see he's quoting from, from the law, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. The certificate, we're divorced. And here's what was happening in Jesus' time. Rabbis were teaching, if you wanted to divorce your wife, you could but it had, you had to find some kind of displeasure in her. So if she burnt your bread, just write her the notice of divorce, done. If she put too, too much salt in your eggs, 
that displeases you, write her the notice, your divorce, it's done. This is what they were teaching. And Jesus steps into this and saying, are you kidding me? That's not true. You can't just get a divorce because they burnt your bread. So this is what Jesus is addressing. He's not addressing the kinds of situations that many of us have experienced. Jesus, and also he's not showing people a way out of marriage. He's telling people, slow down. Stop. Jesus is honoring marriage. He's rebuking this no-fault divorce culture, this easy dissolving of marriage. And that's a word that I think many Christians, we need to hear. Because sometimes you hear Christian couples say things like, well, I'm just not happy and and we've lost the spark and we don't have the same interest and we've fallen out of love. Okay, have some caffeine. Take a nap. See a counselor. Walk in community. And repent of your pride. You'll be fine. We just don't have the same interests. Well, get the same interests. Their interests are everywhere. You can go get them. Watch Top Chef with your spouse. I'm not interested in that. We'll repent and then watch it. Oh, he just wants to watch the Rockets. He sounds like a godly man. Just follow him. (laughs) Repent of your pride and your self-interest. And it's like there's verses in the Bible about this. You should look also not only to the interest of yourself, but into the interest of others. Romans 14, Philippians 2. Many marriages, we all go through difficult, out-of-sort seasons, but there are some times when he does mention a case where divorce isn't sinful because of something horrible happened. Sexual immorality. You can see, he does, I know some people say, no, there is no exception. Well, except Jesus says the word except. 32, just read 32, but take what's in the commas out, that clause out. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Okay, so that would mean you could never, uh, and it is speaking from the man's perspective, that the man could never initiate a divorce. But he says, no, look, here's one. Everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual morality, that one, he says, this painful situation sometimes could lead to a non-desirable but permissible divorce. I think divorce should never be desirable. But sometimes it happens because in this sinful world, it happens. I mean, I've seen many marriages bounce back. Many do from, from adultery. The gospel of grace can heal. It can restore. It takes time. And I know also that sometimes in this broken world, sometimes people don't reconcile. And that happens too. And that's why Jesus says there is this, this clause here. And here's what you also need to know about these verses. These two verses. You can't build your whole view on two verses. This isn't everything the Bible has to say about this, guys. Paul has stuff to say about this too. Jesus will say more about this later in Matthew 19, so obviously I'm out of time to go even further deep into all of this this kind of stuff. But as I said last week, you can't run to Paul too quickly. I want to say this week, you also can't forget to run to Paul too. Because he has stuff to say in 1 Corinthians 7 about abandonment being how someone could be freed from their marriage if they were abandoned. And others... I mean, many scholars also interpret abandonment as abuse fitting into that because the spouse has abandoned caring for that spouse. 
and is not for them, but now is against them. So that adultery, abuse, abandonment could lead to a non-desirable but an allowable reason for divorce. And I'll say this too, as one of your pastors, I think each situation is different and it should happen in community and it should happen with counselors and pastors involved. And I do believe remarriage can happen too. Because if there is a permissible divorce, then it makes sense that there is permissible remarriage. Because in this sinful world, it happens and grace can restore. And Jesus even addresses it. Look at what he says in 32 again. So I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, look, causes her to commit adultery. What is Jesus saying? It sounds like he's speaking negatively negatively towards the woman. He's not. Because Jesus says, you caused her. You made it happen. Because he's saying this to people in the first century, that if this woman was wrongly divorced, she burnt his bread, was given a certificate, and kicked out the door, now she's homeless. No income, no way to provide for herself. She's going to get remarried to survive. And Jesus says, don't look at her as the one who messed up. You messed up, the one who stamped that certificate. You caused her to now end up in this relationship. And the next one, look at what he says. And whoever marries a divorced woman, I think this woman who burnt the bread, keep using that picture, and was kicked out wrongly. Now Jesus is saying, now you caused the guy that she remarried to sin too. Because it's your fault. Because you belittled marriage. That's on you, not her. So why is Jesus saying all this to us? Well, that disciples should have a high view of marriage. A high view of your marriage. Because Jesus, as your personal life Lord and Savior, this is what he does. He cares about the intimate areas of our life. Some things that we haven't even opened up to anybody. Jesus says, I care about them. He cares about your anger. He cares about your eyes. He cares about your desires. He cares about your marriage. How do you feel about all this? Feel great? No, we all realize we fail in many ways, don't we? This is not one of those, you're a champion kind of sermons. This is one of those, we need crucifixion. We need Christ in our place. This is why we need Jesus. Because we are all, at times, angry, and then have lust, and then belittle marriage. But that we need the one who took all of our anger at the cross, who took all of our lust at the cross, who took our adultery, our belittling of marriage at the cross on himself and he died so you could be actually forgiven. So, you, so when he died, your sins died with him. And when he rose again from the dead, this means you rose with him to new life. So you could walk in that newness of life. So now anger doesn't have a control on you because you've been raised with Christ. Now lust doesn't have chains on you because you've been raised with Christ to new life. And adultery and belittling of marriage doesn't have to define your life anymore because now you've been defined by the risen Christ. He lived all of this for you. Do you realize that? Jesus is not asking you to do anything he hasn't already done. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He had women on his ministry team with him everywhere. Women who even have a history of being promiscuous. He never lusted or took advantage of them. 
and he has a marriage that he does not belittle. And even when he sinned against, he has no intention of divorcing any of us. And Jesus gives all of this to you. I can live this through you, he says. If you've been crucified with me and you're my disciple, then it's no longer you who live, but me. So walk with me. Walk with me to newness of life. This is what Jesus invites you to today. It's yours if you'll walk with him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.